0: Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl.
1: And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein.
0: Rick, I'm coming to you from Palm Beach, West Palm Beach to be specific, just down the road from Mar-a-Lago. This is an emergency Powerhouse Politics podcast. We thought after uh, the incredible developments uh, last night with the president announcing airstrikes on Syria, uh, news of a White House shakeup possibly in the works, we thought we'd better. Uh, get to our listeners before the weekend.
1: Trump at war. This is a big deal. And and what's so striking about this is that you talk about major policy shifts all happening in the first 80 days. This happened within an 80-hour period inside that 80 days, where you, ha- you went from the policy of the United States government being that the, the people of Syria should decide Assad's fate, and the statement by the president that he's not the president of the world and America first to those images with that awful incident uh, with children among those who were gassed by Assad chemical weapons being used and the turnabout where he is actually ordering airstrikes against the Syrian regime an amazing turn of events John and, and you went down there thinking you'd have a nice couple of days in the Florida sun and all of a sudden you are uh, covering another armed conflict pretty astounding
0: and I found myself in the midst of a late night, I'm talking, you know, almost 11 o'clock at night, press conference with guess who, Rick? Rex Tillerson.
1: I don't know that he speaks. Secretary speak. of State Rex Whoa, look Tillerson. look at that. He
0: speaks. He's out there. I mean, I mean. He'll um, be on the Sunday show this weekend. Fascinating. Too I, want, I, I want to get to that. But also, uh, you know, this being a, uh, a special edition of Powerhouse Politics, we're going to be joined in a few minutes by Colonel Steve Ganyard. Uh, Colonel Ganyard, uh, Northwest grad, one of the smartest guys I know, uh, is somebody who has actually flown combat missions over Iraq, uh, knows what this is like. He's going to talk to us in some granular detail about what was accomplished with these airstrikes and what was not accomplished. But, Rick, back to your sense of this being a dramatic change. We've seen the president, an evolution, a revolution within 80 hours. Uh, really uh, phenomenal. I, you know, of course, covering Donald Trump's campaign from the beginning and even before he was a a candidate. This was Mr. America first. This was we are not going to go out and try to save the world. He didn't want to be president of the world. He said we have to stop getting involved and trying to solve other people's problems. Let's solve our own problems. Uh, When the horrendous chemical weapons attack that crossed... The famous red line back in t- t- 2013 happened. Uh, Donald Trump uh, tweeted his urging, his almost pleading to then President Barack Obama, don't intervene. Don't bomb Syria. Don't get involved. Uh, and here he's faced with a very similar situation, but sees, sees it differently from the perspective of somebody actually sitting in the Oval Office. He sees the horror uh, play out on the television screens and he's told you know that he has uh, an opportunity to to maybe prevent it from happening again and, and i think he shows
1: action. there's a lot that he's demonstrating to the world here and i think he he felt like he was being uh, poked and prodded and tested by Assad went out there and seemed to thumb his nose at the United States on this and, and expected there would be no response. One point that we learned from President Trump, he is not going to be constrained by what he said before about what he would do and what he wouldn't do. Because if that, would, that alone was the guiding principle, he would not be authorized force against Syria. He would not have done it without congressional authorization. He was so stark in those warnings to President Obama that it would be a mistake. The other thing is, that the signal that, um, that we've heard from the White House in the, uh, over the last 24 hours is if you cross this president, if you cross red lines or other colored lines, I guess many lines with this president, then there will be consequences. And that seems like an important takeaway that, that, that President Trump w- would like to people to have. So I, I have two big questions, John, that maybe you have some insight in. Uh, and, and I think they are, they're both urgent at this moment. D- do you get the sense? Is there a Syria plan? And is there a Trump doctrine? Or are both of these things one-offs?
0: Well, two great questions i put very variations of those questions to uh, the secretary of state last night who briefed alongside the still new national security advisor uh uh hr mcmaster uh they came I, I am and i should explain i am here in west palm beach that's why you may hear the the palms i hear uh, birds in, occasionally
1: you know, are there birds chirping breezes. it sounds ideal there
0: are uh there, there there are birds there was actually and i'm not Kidding in the least about this, there was a bobcat sighted here last night. Uh, <laughs> so you'll hear various. You'll, you'll hear you'll hear some sounds. Uh, but uh, you know the, the 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 one thing in terms of this idea of a Trump doctrine. One thing Tillerson said, and, and by the way, I have to say this was so. This was an off-camera press conference with the traveling White House press corps. So a pretty small group of us uh, here uh, at a place called the Tideline uh, Hotel in, in West Palm Beach. And uh, he came in, freely took questions. Um, I thought was uh, spoke with authority. Um, didn't seem to be dodging or hedging. Seemed very direct in his answers. And I, I kept on thinking, this is a guy who has done everything he can do to avoid taking questions, to avoid being in front of the press. And why? I mean, he's a very, I think, I think one of the most effective, uh, maybe the most effective person I had seen speaking for. Uh, Trump's foreign policy. But what he said is the message here is this is a president who will act when there is reason to act. And that, that may sound like a pretty simple statement, but when you think of where we were in the wake of, uh, President Obama's decision back in 2013 to not punish Syria for crossing the red line, to draw the red line, have Syria flagrantly go by it and not, to, uh, to to go forward with military action, there was a sense. Um, I, I've heard, you know, foreign policy people that are no, that are, you know, certainly not neocons or or or, or big Republicans, but but otherwise uh, very positively inclined towards Barack Obama, uh, who uh, were concerned that this would send a message to the world that there really is no. Incredible threat of U.S. unilateral military action—that that is just something not that, that that president was not going to do. And if you remember, in the wake of uh, of that decision, August 2013, uh, 2013, we saw a newly aggressive Russia uh, go in and, and, and take Crimea, uh, become aggr- you know, a, a push forward uh, Russian, you know, pro-Russian uh, separatists in Eastern uh, Ukraine. Uh, we saw the uh, the Chinese newly assertive in the South China Sea. A whole series of of events that may not be directly tied to what President Obama didn't do in August of 2013. But, you know, it happened again with tough rhetoric coming from the White House, but no action. Right. And I think part of a Trump doctrine here was if there is reason to act, the United States will act, even if that means unilateral military action. Remember, Rick? Not a single ally, either in the region or in Europe, was even consulted before this happened. They were supportive afterwards, but this was a U.S. and a U.S. entirely operation.
1: And they didn't even try. And John, I know you may get bobcat sightings down there in uh, in, in West Palm Beach, but I've got an even more exciting sighting here in the studio in Washington. Guess who just walked in? With a cup of coffee, because he's got to be caffeinated uh, Is Is it... T T, sorry. Uh,
0: is, is is speaking? Of, is it, so, so so not not a bobcat, but is it a wildcat? It
2: is. Ooh, yeah. Very well good, played. Good analogy. Good job. Yeah. So here, uh, so here in, in studio, uh, is, is Colonel Steve
0: Ganyard. Ganyard. Uh, uh Colonel Ganyard, thank you for for joining us. So uh, I was struck uh, by uh, first of all, the, 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 there's that the Donald Trump did this to begin with, but the way this action was undertaken. Uh, 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles, all aimed essentially at a single target. Uh, the, the airfield from which those Syrian jets took off that, 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 that uh, did the uh, chemical weapons attack. A single target, 59 cruise missiles. Uh, this, is, this must be an overwhelming force when it comes to uh, destroying a single airfield, but, but this cannot significantly degrade uh, the the assets, the military assets of uh, Bashar al-Assad.
2: Exactly, John. Um, I, I was looking at the at the numbers. I think there were uh, twenty uh, what are called Su 22s The um, the NATO code name is uh, Fitter. Uh, it's an old uh, Russian slash Soviet uh, attack jet um, uh, that's been around for probably twenty thirty years, and they went after twenty of them. Uh, many of them were in revetments and protected. Uh, and so unknown about how many of them were destroyed, but those 20 represent about 10 percent of the total combat power of the Syrian Air Force. So this is not something uh, that was uh, going to degrade or will not degrade the combat power. To any significant degree, uh, but I think uh, we've we've all discussed that that really wasn't the point. The point here was to make a statement uh, to show that uh, that we could hit them when and where we wanted, uh, and that uh, either they knock off these uh, these chemical attacks uh, on on uh, Syrian civilians, or that there would be uh, uh, further follow on consequences.
0: Uh, Tillerson and McMaster, in briefing us uh, last night, made the point quite. I mean, quite a pointed statement from, from Tillerson that Moscow was not informed, uh, that, that, that no call went to Vladimir Putin, that he didn't get Lavrov on the phone to say, hey, we're, we're going to do this. Uh, but there was a military-to-military uh, coordination on this. The, uh, the uh, U.S. military uh, informed the Russian military of what we were going to be doing so we wouldn't be taking out any, any Russian personnel or Russian assets on the ground. How
2: is that done? Um, it could be done several ways. When I think. Would that have happened? Yeah, I think that it probably uh, happened. Um, well, it's a good question, but it wouldn't have taken much because there is this coordination hotline, which is designed to prevent uh, problems of aircraft that are airborne. You have uh, U.S. airport planes. You have. Um, Navy, uh, Air Force airplanes. You have AWACS, you have tankers, uh, you have Russian airplanes, and you have Syrian airplanes, and all of them are flying around uncoordinated uh, at at various uh, at various altitudes, and uh, you you know airplanes run into each other. And so, what you want to do is is make sure that um, certain sectors are coordinated, and that you know where people are going to be. And so, using that hotline, they could have given the Russians a heads up. Say, you need to stay out of this sector, whatever sector that was, where they were flying the Tomahawks. uh, Probably something that was not in the northwest corner. We know that there's a very sophisticated surface-to-air missile system up in the northwest corner that the Russians have that could have detected these, these Tomahawk missiles and shot them down. Now, that would have been a bold move by the Russians to do so. Uh, the Syrians still have uh, some some good capability that we saw um, that was uh, launched against uh, uh, an Israeli attack against Hezbollah uh, weapons shipment uh, about a week ago. So um, I'm sure there was some sort of small heads up. Normally in these cases, you're going to get it at a diplomatic level to be something where the uh, the ambassador of a particular country will go, uh, the ambassador to a particular country will go and say, uh, we're about to either overfly uh, your country and, and uh, just a heads up, uh, or Or something that would be sort of a courtesy call, but it wouldn't be much more than a few minutes uh, prior some of the reports we 're seeing today on the ground sh- suggest that the that the uh, Syrian military was moving out as early as nightfall last night, and we know that the that the impacts were somewhere were around three a m so I think just the fact that the president was talking. Uh, the day prior uh, to the strikes that these strikes could happen, uh, the powers of deduction and self preservation you probably want to say uh, i 'm a pretty good target because uh, we launched this uh, chemical <laughs> attack out of this airfield, and uh, so you probably want to start moving your uh, your belongings uh, out of your out of your room. Uh, so I think that there was probably some of that, um, you know, th- th- since the uh, Cold War, the Russians have uh, had uh, uh, spy ships, small trawlers that have always followed large uh, naval elements. Any, any aircraft carrier would have what's called an AGI, a, a Russian uh, intelligence ship, following it, uh, which is why when we tend to launch large-scale military uh, actions – uh, anywhere in the world the Russians know about it very soon after so i have no doubt that there was a was a was a russian intelligence ship somewhere close to these two navy destroyers and as they watched the uh, the plumes of the uh, of the tomahawks Take off. They were probably uh, on the uh, on the radio to Moscow, telling them it was about to happen. Uh, so, so that may have, that may have been the tip off, but there certainly wasn't a need a, a need for surprise. I mean, if we think about this, surprise wasn't wasn't the uh, wasn't the key here. The statement itself yes. of attacking this airfield was was the real key.
1: I want to get into that because it does seem like this is that this is that kind of attack. This is about a message. This is this is sending a message. H- how is a message like this? likely to be received uh, we, we know what they're saying publicly we know that the the Assad regime first of all which which denies being behind the chemical weapon attack in the first place says this is a violation of international law their own sovereignty we know that the Russians are saying the same thing and they're protesting but uh, are, is that the is that their actual response and are they likely to respond militarily in any way do you just sort of take this one on the chin because you know you deserved it or did, what, are they, what are they learning about President Trump here that's important
2: if you're on the other side yeah, I think um, uh, they, along with us, uh, probably can't draw too many uh, President Trump conclusions because <laughs> what he said and did yesterday was totally different from what he said and did the, the day before. But uh, I don't even think this is a punch in the chin, Rick. I think this was a punch in the arm. Uh, there's no bloody nose. There's no broken jaw because all it was was an airfield. It wasn't even the most important airfield, uh, although I, I have been told by people on the ground that this was a uh, was a primary supply base for the Syrian forces who were fighting uh, ISIS out to the uh, central part of Syria. but that was not the intent, and I think that Assad took it for what it's worth. I was actually quite shocked at how muted the response from Syrian, uh, the, the, at least the, uh, the verbal responses from the Syrians were, uh, and and it seems that the Russians were far more uh, up in arms and 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 agitated about this than the Syrians were. If Assad's smart, he's just going to let it go and say, yeah, okay, I got gotcha. you, and he's going to continue to do. We saw it yesterday, right afterwards. They continue to barrel bomb and kill civilians with indiscriminate shelling and in Homs.
1: And there's reports that they're using the same airbase today to launch new missions, um, not chemical attacks, we don't believe. So it, it, the, I, I want to get to this point, too, because I think you're right. We're all trying to figure out how this guy operates, and we're trying to figure out what, what the, the guiding principles are, not just for Syria, but more broadly, how the president plans to use military force. In your mind, did this differ in any significant way from the kind of retaliatory attack that a President Marco Rubio, say, or President Jeb Bush, or President Hillary Clinton, for that matter, might have have engaged in? Leaving Obama aside, because we know he didn't act, a lot of these plans were developed under the Obama years. But did this look different than the sort of mainstream consensus,
2: foreign policy, national security reaction that you'd expect? I think in some ways, uh, President Obama stepped back and, and thought, um, what comes after Assad? And if I do something, we know that the plans that they were given in 2013 were extensive. It was a two-day bombing campaign. It was going after Assad himself. It would have f- fostered regime change. So in this case, I think that um, that maybe uh, President Trump saw this as, I don't want to change the conditions on the ground, because we don't know that the, what comes after is any better than what we have now, especially with ISIS out to the, uh, out to the east. So I think that there was a, a, a calculated move here to do something that was small, literally contained within the, the confines of an airfield that wouldn't change the way that the military uh, was, uh, uh, actions were unfolding on the ground. Uh, and I think he did it with, with uh, that thought that just make a statement, don't make it any worse, and let's see if they take the hint.
0: So we're told, H.R. Uh, McMaster told us that there were three options that were presented to the president um, about res- how to respond to this uh, chemical weapons attack. And that he uh, dismissed one of the options and then uh, asked for more detail about the other two. Knowing what you know, um, kind of your, your, your read on, on, on what what the objective was here. What 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 do you what do you think he was looking at? What what were the other options that he would have been he would have been weighing?
2: in you know the, the military is um <laughs> traditionally always presents three options and one's a throwaway <laughs> and the other two are okay and so that's probably what happened here is that uh, there was a throwaway <laughs> option and then there was the two options that okay we could do this and one's more and one's less and so i'm sure that's and that's you know a lot of washington works that way as well but i'm sure that's what uh, i'm sure that's what was uh, was done and probably the other option discarded was something that was would have gone beyond the confines of the airfield and, and would have been a wider uh, direction shot, you know, maybe with something that involved uh, uh, targeting an Assad palace or something like that. But um, I I think that, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I I was thinking about this before, he so clearly was moved by those images to do what he did. And so before we had this real politique president two days prior, and then you have this horrific image, uh, and you say, is this now going to be foreign policy by pathos? Uh, you know, right. where does it where does it go from here? Um, thinking in a broader context, though, he was having dinner with Xi Jinping. And if you think of all the threats to the United States, it's the relationship with China that is most dangerous uh, and will continue to get dangerous. And that you have this uh, this uh, almost uh, uh, a bit of a sideshow, a uh, dangerous sideshow that is North Korea. And so uh, I thought it was interesting to think about this in the context that there was an emotionally driven military strike on one side of the world that in many ways was probably Machiavellian in its effect of Xi Jinping, if you just sit back down. Hey, sorry, I had to go strike Syria. Uh, what, what was it we were talking about in North he, Korea? He fights him
1: over to his house <laughs> right. to attack somebody. He's <laughs> right. incredible. Yeah. yeah,
2: right. So it was, I, I I don't know whether it was uh, whether it was uh, planned that way, but it sure played out in a, in a beautifully uh, Machiavellian way.
1: But how? So how? Did the, I'm asking you now. Several layers of impossible uh, impossible hypotheses and, uh, and and assumptions here. You got to get in Donald Trump's head. Or you got to get, get in, in the Kim, Kim Jong Un's <laughs> oh, head. But how how, how do you How does one, an an actor on the world stage, you've traveled very widely around the world, in Asia included, but how do you digest this? Does this make it less likely in your mind that other countries, Kim Jong-un included, do do they not test him because he's unpredictable, because he might do something that goes against what he said he would do before because he might act as quickly as he did? Is that part of the play here?
2: I think with Kim Jong-un, he's going to look at this and go, whoa, this is the first president that's actually done something. Um, You know, you look, there are Republican presidents and there are Democratic presidents, and none of them have been able to solve the problem that is increasingly uh, North Korea. And so here's the first time where a guy goes, I told you I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it. And so I've told you, there's a red line. If I see an ICBM on a launch pad in North Korea, it isn't going to happen. So he is going to have to think twice about that because he's never really felt under any threat. He feels protected to some degree by the umbrella that China presents uh, to him. China has no vested interest in helping us to solve that North Korea problem. Uh, maybe North Korea becomes a, a, a bargaining chip. Uh, we've getting very little feed out, feedback from uh, the two meetings. Uh, at Mar-a-Lago today, uh, between uh, between Xi and Trump, and so it'll be interesting to see what was actually said. There was lots of happy talk, but um, we know he's a, a tough negotiator. Um, if you if you think back to the Nixonian days, how Kissinger talked about how Nixon wanted to be thought of as, as that guy who is the, you know, the, I'll, I'll date myself, that Kurt Vonnegut analogy of the cuckoo clock from hell where like mm-hmm. one of the gears was sawed off and all of a sudden like one of the gears would slip in a totally unpredictable way. So that Nixonian I want to be that guy where I'm just a little bit crazy and you're going to have to take that into account. I don't know. Perhaps that's part of the uh, tr- part of the Trump doctrine.
0: Well okay, Trump doctrine because Rick Rick started this podcast off by posing the question, what is the Trump doctrine? And I suppose a week ago uh, we could have speculated the Trump doctrine is kind of a, a renewed America first. Uh, the United States will not get involved uh, uh, anywhere unless, you know, absolute direct threat to American interests. We're not going to intervene in f- humanitarian grounds promoting democracy we don't care about. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're getting back to a very, to to, to, to realpolitik, politic, uh, uh maybe steer a little bit towards, uh, towards isolationism. Now, I mean, we're, we're talking, he's the president who says he's going to do something and does it. Uh, gone are the, you know, the, 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 days from the last administration where the United States is almost never going to intervene unilaterally. Uh, if we do intervene at all, it's going to be through a, you know, uh, through, through, through a, a broad multilateral approach, uh, maybe even leading from behind. So what is, what is the Trump doctrine?
2: You know, I think when we talked about, uh, talk about doctrines, we say, well, it's, you know, it's a neocon doctrine, it's a, it's a realist, co- it's real politique. Uh, when we try to do that, we're trying to put a, a policymaker in a box so we can think about how to predict what their next move is going to be. Um, we've gone through two almost juxtaposed views of foreign policy within four days. And so um, not only too early to even talk about a Trump doctrine, <laughs> we we may never get to a Trump doctrine because if we continue to get driven in a foreign policy that's uh, governed by what we see, by images, by how things, uh, you know, personal relationships, then I think that um, uh, we're going to be asking uh, this uh, even four years from now. Colonel, before we
1: let you go, there, there's been... Two episodes in my mind, one in the very early days of the, of the Trump presidency, and, and now this most recent one, where the president pu- pushed the trigger. There was the, 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 the raid in, in Yemen mm-hmm. that, um, by all accounts, was, was botched. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the planning had been rejected by the Obama folks, were told, and they uh, went not, forward not, with not, it.
0: Not, not according to Sean Spicer. Uh, so I'm right. sorry,
1: I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> and, 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 and I guess so that. that
0: Full on, total, complete total success
1: okay so there's that
0: (laughs) there's that uh and then successful
1: failure but you've you've got these you bookend these two things so what what do you take away as a lesson about about donald trump president trump's relationship with the military his willingness to say go is he likely saying no to a lot more than we're ever finding out about or is it is it kind of a go go rah rah you know pro-military if my guys tell me they can do it let's do it yeah
2: it it seems like uh what we're reading uh, and and the things that we're we're being told uh that this is a president who is actually devolving power back to the pentagon in ways that um are far more traditional it is a huge break from the obama days uh, the NSC had a tight control on who was attacked, who was even who was even approached to discuss policy questions. So the Obama NSC was very very different from this NSC. The leadership style of President Obama was very different from uh, President Trump. But we're clearly seeing the ability of the of the military to make what many people would say are ought to be civilian policy decisions. But uh, if the president has given uh, Secretary Mattis uh, a, a, a commander's intent, here's the end state that I envision, uh, and you are free to use the military uh, means available you, to you to do that, um, then Secretary Mattis is the kind of guy that, that can, can handle that responsibility. But uh, it's still quite a break from Obama, although very much in the past, say, 20 years, uh, keeping of, of how presidents have done foreign policy and the use of military force. And
0: with with Obama, you had a clear sense that he was always worried that he was going to be jammed by the military, uh, that he was going to be forced into uh, to, to making moves that he didn't like. I, you know, I think we could speculate whether he felt that happened with the uh, the, the his own surge into Afghanistan. Um, but with Trump, he's there. Are generals everywhere, and, and this is the fun. He was the candidate who told us that he knows more than the generals, but the generals are everywhere. I, I've even heard. Rick, I don't know if you've heard this, but, uh, but, but speculation that, uh, that, that he may be looking to a general to head up the Secret Service, uh, General Ray Odierno. Um, hmm. uh, so it's just, it, 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 it's an interesting, it, 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 I mean, have, have we seen a president surround himself in, in, in more critically important positions with, uh, with military brass?
2: Uh, we haven't. We haven't. And uh, to me personally, it being retired military, it's a bit uncomfortable because um, my, my view of the world is the one where um, there is an unequal dialogue between civilians and, and military and that the civilians uh, have, the last, uh, have the first and the last word uh, in the use of military force. So having so many generals there, is, uh, it's a bit disconcerting. On the other hand, these are folks, if you look at Ray, uh, you know, John Kelly and you look at Ray Odierno, Uh, and you look at uh, Jim Mattis, these are folks that have seen some of the most intense combat that the United States has been involved in the past 40 years, really since the end of Vietnam. And so these are guys who know the price of war. And so in some ways they may be a break on more emotional uh, knee-jerk reactions that would be called for within the White House for, for military force. So um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but, uh, but, but these are at least three generals that you can speak of who have seen the pain of war and dealt with it firsthand uh, only a few years ago and maybe, uh, and maybe uh, more of a buffer. Uh, than an actual insider uh, to use military force.
1: Well, Colonel Gagnard, you can share my NSC anytime, anytime you like. We, we appreciate you being with us. Insurance I'm not going to be your Sean Spicer, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> <I'm sorry. God. laughs> That's okay. We'll, we'll spare you those indignities, <laughs> Colonel Gagnard. Thanks yeah. for doing this. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks. I, I got to tell you, just just to button that up. Some of the most impressive people that I have encountered in the course of of my years doing doing this uh, doing this work covering. The various uh, parts of Washington that I've covered are, are, you know, senior U.S. military officers, including people like Steve Ganyard. Um But, uh, but it is um, <laughs> it, it it is incredible to see, you know, even uh, even last night seeing H.R. McMaster, a guy who, uh, who I covered a bit when he was uh, uh, Colonel McMaster during during the the Iraq War, uh, there as the uh, you know the the, the you know, current, he, he wasn't wearing the uniform, but he is still a, uh, active duty general, uh, running the national security council. And then you look across to the department of Homeland security, you look to the Pentagon civilian leadership is retired, you know, general Mattis. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating. This is, this is somebody who, this is a president who feels comfortable with corporate Titans and, uh, military brass he
1: loves those stars on the collars too so J- john I-, I want your thoughts before we go on uh, you because you've covered wars you've covered you've been in, out in the field for wars you've been at the pentagon for them and been in briefings like the ones you've seen in the, in the last 24 hours but wh- how does this how does this uh compare in terms of the white house piece of it in terms of the involvement of the president what we've learned about the president's role uh, his advisors and also how they're communicating the decision making process
0: Well, the impression you got here was a president that was driving the process. Uh, You know, clearly had, you know, watching those images of the chemical weapons attack, uh, had a, a, you know, this this is a guy we know that likes to watch cable television. He was watching that stuff. Um, Now, why this had such a profound impact on him and the attack in 2013 uh, which was actually a larger, uh, chemical weapons attack, did not, you know, maybe had to do with where he's sitting. Again, he's sitting now in a place where, you know, he's being told he can do something about it. Um, I, so, you know, the president himself convened the meeting of his National Security Council on Wednesday afternoon at about three o'clock. And then he comes down here yesterday, Thursday, uh, to, to Florida, has another, you know, meeting of his National Security Council, which he joins on Air Force One via, you know, secure uh, video teleconference um, and, uh, you know, gets more details on, on his options and then gets here and, and, and approves uh, uh, the airstrikes. I mean, rapidly, decision making that is much more rapid than what I've grown accustomed to uh, covering. Um, and very much it seems driven uh, but by, by the guy in the Oval Office
1: and that that's a pretty extraordinary thing because it's a guy that has no experience with this world and it's it's all it's all brand new Zero, yeah. and, and even the even the imagery of uh, flying down mar a lago and I realized it was for a meeting with the Chinese president but but leaving Washington and, and leaving that behind and and then and then pressing these buttons and activating this plan uh, while you've got the Chinese delegation, you know, often another hotel, right? This all happened after they were they were dispatched, and put and the, the kind of the business went on yep. through all of it. You have so much that was being juggled all at once by this by this White House. But uh, it does seem like the president wanting to communicate that he was the guy that made the decision; it was him at the center of the action.
0: But but you know, it's also important to point out how limited it was, and I think that you know Colonel Gagnon made that you know very clear. What do you call it? A punch in the arm. Um, right. you know th- this was a, a single a single airbase. Uh, so th- this was a this was something that was important. Somebody what, just dropped a glass. Did, what did you non-native. just do? You break it. Um, <laughs> You're gonna have uh, to pay for that, John. <laughs> uh, you know th- 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 this was uh, targeted. Uh, it was limited. Um, it was meant to send a message. The question is, what happens if that message is not heard? Right. What happens if it does not change Assad's behavior? um, you know, what does he do next? And you asked the other question, which we didn't really get to, we'll have to wait for the next Power Politics podcast, but what is, is there now a strategy in Syria? And what Tillerson said last night in response to essentially that question was, there's been no change in our military approach to Syria. This was, you know, this was, a, this was a, a single strike. Now we get back to where we were. And where we were was, you know, inheriting a policy that really was no coherent policy. So, um, you know, I guess, I guess, like so many of the powerhouse politics podcasts here, uh, Rick, we're going to have to end on a uh, on a to be continued note.
1: Dun, dun, dun. Do we have music for this yet? But at, uh, something. <laughs> <We> <laughs> Ooh, need, that's good. There you go.
0: That's good. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get out of here, get back up there to see you in Washington, Rick. Uh, that is it for this emergency edition of Powerhouse Politics. Thank you for listening, and thanks for all those uh, listeners who recently have been leaving reviews and ratings for us on iTunes. Uh, really appreciate it, and we'll uh, we'll get back to you next week.